So uh, today we're obviously taking a break from our, our, our trip through the Gospel of John uh, to, to just put a focus on the resurrection. Uh, we were looking at where we are in the Gospel of John and we were uh, really at a point where it's like, man, if we would have been better planners, we could have, I mean, we were right there at the Passover week and things like that. Um, my, my mic is really, uh, is it getting static back there? I might have to keep trying to do that to ground it out. Um, I think it just does, it's hot too, so it doesn't work well when it's hot, it's like me. Uh, <laughs> um, so anyway, we're looking at the resurrection, and I just want to maybe just kind of bring, bring the light, uh, something you, for each person individually. Um, there there might have been defining moments or a defining moment in your life at some point up to this point that you might say, yeah, that moment was pretty pivotal in, in my life, something personal. Uh, it might have been your first kiss. Uh, it might have been your first child being born. It might, for some of you, might have just, at this point in life, it, you know, I've finished high school or I've finished, finished college, you know, and that, that's a pivotal moment in my life at, up to this point, um, or, or a really defining moment for me, kind of when everything starts shifting and getting uh, shaped into being. Um, but also it might be for someone who, people intervening in your life, like someone stepped into your life and spoke something that just really you're going to carry for the rest of your life. I, I know I've shared this story with some of you before. Um, whenever uh, I, I was kind of just, uh, we just finished high school and Hunter was on his way. He was going to be born soon. Uh, matter of fact, it's whenever he was born. I'd, I'd taken a few days off from the job I was working. Um, and when I came back, I, what, I, what I realized is that they were uh, having uh, kind of like a, a layoff at, at work. And I got caught up on the list. And so when I got back to work, I'm like, oh, wow, I got caught up on the list. I said, no, 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 you didn't. You were on the list. Um, but the guy that you've been working with, the, the old man that you've been working with, his older guy, um, he heard that you were getting um, let go, and he said, don't let the guy go. He's just having a, he's a young boy trying to get started. He's got his first kid. I want to go home, so I want to take his place. And that, I wasn't even a believer at that moment, but I just remember that was a pivotal moment in my life. I, we, we talked about that the other day, Ashley and I did. Um, just moments where people intervene in your life and just make a huge impact, a huge difference that, that for them, they don't really think that it is, but it, re it really is. And I have moment after moment about that, that I could share with you. You might have those same moments. Um, and then, you know, there's some not so good moments. You know, you might have had to put someone in the ground that wasn't such a, it, it was a defining moment in your life, uh, but it wasn't a, a, a great one, it, you know, or it might have just been some bad news about someone's health that you're close to. Um, and so, our lives are filled, right? I mean, I, I hope I'm bringing to memory some of these moments, these shifting moments in your life that you've had up to this point. Um, but the big idea of Easter, right? This is, now we're coming on to this ultimate defining moment, right, in history for the world. That includes you and that includes me. We're part of the world. And so this was a, this was a world-shifting event in history that, that happened um, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what we're here to celebrate and to remember. And it's not just one day a year we want to remember this. I want us to always, uh, you know, we, I want to remind you that we're always trying as hard as we can to be gospel-centered, Jesus-centered in our church family. And so when you come here, we would hope that you would remember the, what Christ has done and what he's overcome week after week. But we put a special focus on that uh, today, that this was a moment that 
literally divided time in history. A.D., B.C., uh, and it also just unlocked the glories of eternity for us. Uh, Just a a world-shifting moment, a defining moment, and and it is, I, I would say, just as a bold statement, whether you agree with it or not, that the resurrection is the greatest event in history. The greatest event in history. Because if it's not the greatest event in history, it is the greatest lie of all history. And that's kind of where we're going to go today. Today I'm going to do a couple of things. Just give some practical and historical thoughts about the resurrection, as well as some biblical um, clarity about the resurrection. Uh, and, And so I just want us to really leave here today one of two places, very sure of the resurrection, are confronted by what you're going to do about the resurrection. Like you can, you could chalk it up as a lie as you if you want to. But I, I don't want this to be like I don't want this to, there, there to be any any haze or any fog about what we believe about the resurrection. Because if it didn't happen, if the resurrection didn't happen, then then Jesus he wasn't a good teacher. Like he was the greatest liar of all times. If the resurrection didn't happen, he would be a heretic, and the Bible would not be a helpful book. It would just it would be a, a, a library of of heresy if the resurrection didn't really happen. And if the resurrection didn't happen, ours is a very false hope, and we are of all people on the face of the planet most to be pitied. Like we are, if the resurrection didn't happen, we who call ourselves followers of Jesus are a pitiful bunch of people if the resurrection didn't happen. Now, I want you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to start there. We're going to look at that, uh, that scripture. If, if you have a phone or an iPad or whatever, you can, you could borrow your neighbor's, uh, your script, scripture if you want. Um, but that's where we'll be in chapter 15. And Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, and in, uh, it's not a it's not a very nice letter. First Corinthians wasn't a very nice letter. He was, it, was, it was a rebuke to the church, First uh, Corinthians was. And when he gets to, toward the end here, he, he picks up in verse 13 of chapter 15 and says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, he's, now he's defending the, the, the historical reality of the resurrection. He says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. He's talking about us being resurrected. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if, the, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ, we have hope in this life only. We are of all people most to be pitied. So if this world-shifting event in history, the resurrection, if, it is a, if it's a myth, then what we're doing right here, what people are doing all across our city, what people are doing all across the world has zero significance and has zero relevance if the resurrection is not true. If the resurrection didn't happen, what we're doing here is a joke, is what Paul's trying to say. It goes on, verse 20, it says, but in fact, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
For as by a man came death, by a man, he's speaking of Adam, by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. That would be those of you who identify with Jesus, those of you who've signed allegiance with Jesus, who follow Jesus. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The, least, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So if all this is true, if the resurrection is true, if it really did happen, if we're going to believe on it, if we're going to put our faith in the fact that resurrection did happen, if God did put on flesh and God did move into our neighborhood and in the form of Jesus, if, he, if Jesus was born of a virgin and if he really did go to the cross and give his life to be crushed for the sins of you and the sins of me and the sins of the world, and after being dead three days in the tomb, Jesus w was resurrected from this grave and from this death and the resurrection is the most important thing that could possibly happen in the entire universe, if it is true. And so what I hope today that you would consider what you believe about the resurrection. Is it true? Do I believe it or not? If it's true, then the Bible is not a good book with just some good philosophy and some good moral code and some good ideas. It is the very Word of God. If the resurrection is true, Jesus is not just a historical figure, not just a, a good teacher, but He is alive and active and moving, and you can personally know Him. And if the resurrection is true, then Jesus is Messiah, the one to come and deliver, the one to come and overthrow evil rule and tyranny and overthrow sin and death. And the Bible teaches then that the resurrection is true. And me personally, as a follower of Jesus, as one who has aligned my life and signed complete allegiance to Jesus Christ, and you, if you follow, if you've signed up, if you've signed that same uh, allegiance to Jesus, we're banking our entire lives on this being true. Our entire lives are being set on this being true, this being accurate, that the resurrection did happen. And let me just share with you that it supersedes any feelings that you might have today or tomorrow or in the future, right? It doesn't matter what I feel, it's what I know to be true in Scripture, it's what I know that I've signed my life up for, that I believe that the Scriptures testify to the resurrection as it being true. So what does the Bible say about it? What does the Bible say about the resurrection? And just as a side note, our, you know, as believers, as followers of Jesus, this is what we use to navigate life. This is our compass, right? Uh, there's so many other voices and so many other writings and so many other important people with important voices, but this is our compass. My mouth is not your compass. 
I want to be helpful in shining a light on Scripture for you, but my word is not how you navigate this world. God's word is how you navigate this world. So we need to know what it says about the resurrection. And I just want to today just say, here's what I'm, I'm banking everything I've got on the resurrection for these number of reasons. Some of them will be biblical and some of them will just be historical and practical. But I believe first off, and I've already said this, that I, I, can, I, can, I can put all my chips on the table about the resurrection because I believe that the Bible is crystal clear about what it says. Nearly 700 years before Jesus was this prophet named Isaiah who, who prophesied about this coming Messiah, this one um, who would come and who would liberate, liberate Israel, not with a sword, but by his suffering. He's going to set God's people free. He's going to release the captives. He's going to overthrow sin and death through his suffering. Not to come and kill and conquer a ruling king or to come and overthrow Rome, but through suffering to submit himself. He would be despised. He would be afflicted. He would be marred. And he would be a man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief. That's what this man 700 years prophesied about, the coming Christ. And he would, he would go on to prophesy that the Savior would, would die and would rise from the dead to vindicate his name before all nations. The resurrection of Jesus to me, to this church, is a close-fisted issue. And what I mean by that is there are, in the Bible, there are primary and secondary principles or doctrines, however you want to call them. And there are some of those that are non-negotiable and some of those that don't break the deal for us. The resurrection is a primary principle. It is a non-negotiable one. And if we let that go, we let go of our entire faith. It's a primary doctrine for the church. The resurrection is. A, a, a very helpful voice in the, in the church for many, many, many years was John Stott, and he said this, Christianity is in its very essence a resurrection religion. The concept of resurrection lies at its heart. You remove it, and Christianity is destroyed. So you see how important it is, the, the doctrine of resurrection, the understanding, the, the clarity that the Bible gives of the resurrection. Jesus really died. Jesus really died. And there are some people who would say that, you know what, at the cross, at Golgotha, he just simply succumbed to pain and passed out. That's, that's a defense that, that some would have. And I'll summarize the text for you, but it's, it's recorded in every, every gospel um, of, the, of the night that Jesus, the night before he was to be arrested, that he didn't sleep at all that night. He stayed up all night praying, trying to keep his disciples awake, to pray with him, keep watch with me, stay up and pray with me, to a point where he was under such stress that he began to sweat drops of blood from his forehead. And while he was under arrest, blindfolded, punched in the face, beard ripped from his face, mocked, spit on, on and on and on. I can go on the list of things that were done while he was under arrest. And then he was taken before Pilate, who had ordered him to be scourged. And this is not just like, we're, gonna, we're just going to discipline you a little bit. Scourging means literally to, to rip the meat from your back until your organs are exposed. 
to beat you to that point. And that's what Pilate ordered him to, to suffer. And then the punishers who were to do this, they fashioned a, a crown of thorns and, and they put it on his head and they literally beat it onto his head with a stick to, to fasten it to his head. And then they took this crossbar that would usually weigh anywhere from 75 to 100 pounds, this Roman crossbar, and they put it on this exposed back and made him start dragging it up a hill. And as he would march up that hill to the place where he would be crucified, I just want you to track with me. Keep up with where we are right now. On the way there, he suffered such exhaustion and dehydration that he couldn't go any further. And they picked a guy out of the crowd named Simon and said, you carry it. And they drug him up the hill. And when they got up the hill, they fastened his hands to this crossbar with seven to nine inch nails that would go right through the two bones of your wrist. And then they would hang him up on the vertical post. And then they would fasten his feet to this cross. This was excruciating pain. And as I was looking through this and studying this, I shared this yesterday as we were driving uh, back home, that the word excruciating is built, the English word is built from a Latin word that means to crucify. So we get our word excruciating from the word to crucify in Latin. So you understand how much pain he's in and they lift him up. They nail his feet to the post. And at that point, the only way that he can breathe the only way that he can get air into his lungs is if he pulls himself up from the nails that are in his wrist to get himself some oxygen and lay himself back down. And he hung there in agony and in suffering until the climax of his suffering where God placed all of the sins of you and me and humanity on the shoulders. The, the worst part of his suffering. He is yet to, to climax to his, the, 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 the most painful and excruciating part until God places all of, his, this, all of the sins of humanity on his shoulders. And while sins are on his son, he judges those sins. And the judgment is death. And so Jesus, Jesus would die on the cross, and it would, for you guys medically who's trying to figure this out, it was likely due to a massive heart attack that he gave himself over to. These trained killers, these Roman trained killers would, would walk by, and they would, they would look at each victim and determine whether they're dead or not. And they did that with Jesus by shoving a spear into his side. And then his followers took him down later that afternoon. And they didn't even have time to prepare the body. It was getting dark. And so the only thing that they could really do is just wrap him in grave cloths, a bunch of them, because it was, they weren't going to be able to get back to him for a couple of days. And they stick him in this tomb. Jesus did not lose consciousness on the cross. Jesus died on the cross. He he gave his life up on the cross. I can bank my resurrection, my, my, I can bank everything I have on the resurrection because after all of this, nearly 500 people were able to testify that they saw Jesus with their eyes 
after all of this. First Corinthians, a little earlier in our, in our text in verse 3, it would say, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That he fulfilled everything that the Scripture testified about him. That he died for our sins. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Not popular opinion or what others might feel about that day, but according to the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, who is Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of them who are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So think about this. While these letters, while the, while the account of the resurrection, the first-hand account of the resurrection is being recorded and circulated around, when it gets to these churches, these gatherings of people, these assemblies of people, there are some in the crowd who are still alive, who validate what's been written. Can you imagine just for a minute, we're talking about the resurrection, like Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, and, the, and a little old lady would stand up in the back and it's like, I can vouch for that. I saw it happen. I saw it with my own eyes happen. Like, imagine what's going on. So, so Paul is saying, there's, there's valid proof and, and lots of testimonies that Jesus was crucified. He was killed. He was put in a grave for three days. And then we saw him alive. We saw him with scars in his hands. We saw him with a scar in his side. So I can... I can put my chip, all my chips on the table that the resurrection is true for those few reasons. But to, to go on, Jesus' mothers and his brothers worshipped him as if he were God after the resurrection. How many of you have siblings in the room? How many of you are a brother or a sister? How many times have they prayed to you or worshipped you? Right? But they, after the resurrection, they worshipped him as God. James and Jude would, would open up their letters and they would refer to him. At, they, would, they would say, we are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. I can bank everything on the resurrection because there's, there's no tomb. There's no, there's no tomb. Like the leader of Judaism, Abraham, he was... He was, when he died, they, they, they put him in a cave in the, in the land of, of Hebron, which is today a holy site. It's a revered site today. You can go there today and visit that site. There was a man named Buddha who was the founder of Buddhism. Um, he died, and his relics were d- divided up into 10 different places. You can go in, in many different places today and see relics, teeth, bones, ashes, things like that of Buddha. And there was a man named Muhammad who was the founder of Islam uh, in 632 AD. He died. And you can go to Saudi Arabia today, don't fly United, and drive and, and see his bones. You, you can actually see this man's tomb, his relics, where he lives. And Jesus has nothing like that. We can't go anywhere and see Jesus's tomb or where he's buried. Why? He's not there. He's not there. There's no tomb for him. He's, he's, he's not there. I can bank everything I've got on the resurrection because cowardly, sinful, backstabbing fishermen were transformed by Jesus. Were, was transformed by the resurrection. Peter, who would nearly cuss a little girl out 
denying Jesus three times, saying, you don't know what you're talking about, I don't know the man, three times, would be the one to stand up after Jesus ascended into heaven and would preach the first gospel-centered sermon, and 3,000 people would come to faith that day. That guy. Thomas, the, the guy who doubts everything, right? The guy we refer to as Doubting Thomas. He says, I will not believe unless I see some marks in his hands or a mark in his side. I won't believe it. Would be the guy history would tell us would travel the farthest of any of the other other apostles, making it all the way to India with the gospel. Some would say that these disciples were lying about the resurrection, like they just, it was a made-up story. The disciples didn't want to lose faith, so they made the story up, that Jesus is dead, and they just robbed the body and went and hid it somewhere, and they said that the resurrection did happen. You don't go to the cross for a lie that you fabricated that you don't benefit from. Peter was crucified as a martyr, but didn't want to count himself with Jesus equal at all and said, would you crucify me upside down on the cross? History would tell us that. The same guy who said, I don't even know him, would go to the cross, this excruciating experience, not for a lie that he made up, that he made up, but that for the full truth of the resurrection. You don't go and subject yourselves to wild animals to be ripped apart for a lie that you fabricated. I can hardly believe that Stephen would take a stoning to death for a lie that he made up that doesn't benefit him at all. These men experienced complete transformation when they encountered the full bodily form of Jesus at the resurrection. I can bank on the resurrection because today, over 2,000 years later, Jesus is still changing lives. He's still working and active and moving. That this little movement that these fishermen with this Jewish rabbi started so long ago, no internet, no marketing techniques, right? They didn't have... Uh, great worship services and great worship bands and they didn't have a dynamic kids ministry and they didn't have enriching family ministries. They just had a message. They just, they just carried a message and it was a message of hope that has grown to a movement of nearly 2 billion people in the world today. 2 billion people. And here's the message. Jesus changed my life. Jesus changed my life. It started with these, with these back alley fishermen. And here we are today, and I'm here to tell you that Jesus changes lives. He's changed my life. And I, there's many people in this room that say, Jesus has radically transformed my life. The resurrection is not a fable or, or fairy tale. It is a historical reality and it changes everything. It changes everything. It's, so there's my, my case for the resurrection, but why does it matter? What, what does it accomplish? Like, what is its, its significance? Why should I care? If the resurrection is true or if it's not true or who, who cares? Well, I just want to say that 
Good Friday, we just celebrated that, that time, and that was just to remember um, what Christ has done. I'm going I'm to I'm allude to you in just a minute how the, the cross and the resurrection have its place in the life of the believer. But it seemed like in that moment that all hope was lost. The guy who walked around saying that we were going to be liberated, the guy who said he was going to set us free, is dead on a cross. Seems like all hope is diminished at the cross. Seems like darkness is won. It seems like the brokenness of humanity has now broken God himself. It seems like God's rescue plan has failed. We heard about it. They've prophesied about it. It doesn't look like it's going to happen. But with the resurrection, we see that the cross was not the defeat of God, but that God's enemies were defeated at the cross. That's what the resurrection tells us. Without the resurrection, God's just defeated. With the resurrection, God's enemies are defeated. Sin has been defeated at the resurrection. Romans 3 would say, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. So y'all get that for just a second? Just in our nature, just who we are as human beings, We don't seek after God. None of us are righteous. None of us can be righteous apart from Jesus. Romans would go on to say that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single person in this room, every single person who walks the face of this earth have sinned and has diminished the glory of God. So sin is not just something bad that you do. It's not like a bad habit that you have. It's not just bad behavior. Sin is high treason against the king. Sin is you vying for the throne. Understand that in all of our sinfulness, what we're aiming for is lordship. That's what we want. And in our nature, we want to be king. I want to be in control. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to do these things. I'm going to say these things. I'm going to cheat these people out. I'm going to lie to them. I'm going to steal from them. I'm going to hurt them so that I can be on top. And I won't won't stop until I'm at the very top. That's our nature, vying for the throne. And Scripture would teach us that we don't sin, and then that just makes us a sinner. We're we're naturally sinners, and sin is the result of that. And it's hardwired into us. It is our inheritance from our father, Adam, who first rebelled against God. So we're sinners by nature, and we're sinners by choice. And because of that, our nature would, would lead us to lust. It would lead us to gossip. It would lead us to cheat It would lead us to lie and steal and to hate, and it would lead us to be racist, and it would lead us to hate and all sorts of evilness. That's what our nature drives us to, selfishness. And because of all of that, Paul would go on to say in Romans 6 that that for for those wages, for the wages of those sin, it's death. That's, that's That's what you get for that. That's what you get for... All of your sinfulness is death. You die. And he would also say to the church at Ephesus, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, 
following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. So I'm not here to tell you today that Jesus loves you just like you are. He will take you as you are, but you must receive faith. You must put your faith in Jesus in order to be called a son or a daughter of the king. Without that, we are by nature children of wrath. We're disobedient. We're not very nice people apart from Christ, if I can stress that. In Romans chapter 4, verse 25, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. He was delivered up. He was, he was put on the cross. He was sacrificed. He was crucified for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Do you see the two different, the, why both are important? That our sin has to be put to death, but then death itself has to be put, it has to be put to death. So let me break down the good news for you. On the cross, Jesus became sin for sinners. For all of you are sinners. Rewind in that. Jesus was put on the cross and became sin for sinners. And all of our sin was placed on Jesus. And God looked and judged. Sin is now put in the grave. It's all on Jesus. And he will be judged that but at the resurrection Jesus is vindicated and here's the good news the good news is that the sin now has been overthrown and by God's grace not earned by you and not earned by me but through faith through belief in Jesus and what he's done what he's carried to the cross what he's carried to the grave is a gift from God in Christ Jesus so that all of the benefits of his resurrection now belong to you and me as followers of Jesus so you see that? That our sin was carried to the cross. And, and Jesus was vindicated for the sacrifice. And he's given us all of that righteousness and all that vindication. We get to share in his inheritance as followers of Jesus Christ. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them the enemy of sin has been defeated at the resurrection and Satan himself has been defeated at the resurrection his Satan and his demons are real that is it, we have a real understanding in scripture that there is an enemy and he hates you and he hates me and he wants nothing else but to steal, steal, to kill, and to destroy you. That's all he wants. But through the cross and through the resurrection of Jesus, Colossians 2 would say, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. I love that. 
just put them out there bare by triumphing over them in Christ. So sin has been defeated, Satan has been defeated, and death itself has been defeated at the resurrection. Death is this great tyrant that rules over every single one of us, and it oppresses us, it hounds us, it don't matter if you're rich or poor, white or purple, educated, uneducated, it, it rules over all of us, death does. And we don't get to control the day of our death or when that time is coming, you all know that, because we don't have any power over death. None of us. And I don't think it's because we fear that we won't exist anymore. I think subconsciously, for those of us who won't admit it, it's fear of what's on the other side of that. Who is on the other side of that? Who will I face? So that's what death is bringing apart from Jesus. But the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Look at the, at the last end there of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 51. It says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be, all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that it is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? With the resurrection, death doesn't have the final words in our lives. So I want to read this account to you. In Isaiah 53, it says, Who has believed what he's heard from us? prophesying. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up like him, a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that, bef that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for this, for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, 
he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. We're, now we're seeing a, a testimony of the, of the resurrection that's to come. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So today, I just want to invite you to consider Romans chapter 10. It says, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved.